Well, good morning, and uh, welcome to all of you. Uh, this morning, we are going to be starting a series through First and Second Thessalonians. I appreciate your flexibility with me and uh, changing up the series direction for, for uh, where we're heading. Uh, but if you, if you have a Bible with you, we're actually going to be in three different passages this morning. We're going to be in Acts 16, Acts 17, and 1 Thessalonians chapter 1. So uh, you can, you can uh, mark those places. We'll start in Acts chapter uh, 16. So as far as it concerns you and your Bible, you can uh, kind of just be ready to be in those three places. First and Second Thessalonians is, is not purely about the return of Jesus Christ, which is what some people may think it's about. But rather, instead of it being about the return of Jesus Christ, First and Second Thessalonians is actually about how to live in light of Christ's return. So this, these uh, two epistles talk about living, waiting, and enduring for Jesus. And all the more as we see, remember what the, what the, what the scripture says, all, all the more as we see the day drawing near. And I was reminded of the day drawing near. Actually, last night I saw an article released that, um, uh, that next year there is scheduled to open a, a one world religion headquarters over in the Middle East. Um, and uh, it's been in the works for a couple of years now, but uh, they're in Abu Dhabi, uh, set to open in, uh, I think, September 2022 or sometime in 2022. Uh, there's, going to be, uh, there's going to be a synagogue, there's going to be a mosque, and there's going to be a church, um, and it's called the Abrahamic Family Something. And I'm not, you know, don't go crazy this morning. Uh, you know, I'm not saying all the prophecies have been fulfilled and, you know, here it is, but certainly we can look around in the world today and see how things are lining up even now for the return of Jesus Christ. And so we look at that and say, well, certainly Jesus, Jesus is coming soon and, and soon and sure he is. I have no idea when we're not, don't go start hunting for dates or a timeline or anything like that. We still don't know when Jesus will return, but nonetheless, Jesus will return and so the question is, as Christians, how then should we live? And that's what First and Second Thessalonians is going to talk about. For to begin reading, perhaps I would just read the passage we're going to look at mainly from First Thessalonians this morning. In First Thessalonians chapter 1, uh, beginning in verse 1, I'll start reading there and then we'll, we'll jump into the rest of the message. First Thessalonians chapter 1, beginning in verse 1, it says this, Paul Silvanus, or Silas, Paul, Silas, and Timothy to the church of the Thessalonians in God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Grace to you and peace. He says, we give thanks to God always for you, for all of you, constantly mentioning you in our prayers, remembering before our God and Father your work of faith and labor of love and steadfastness of hope in our Lord Jesus Christ. For we know, brothers, loved by God, that he has chosen you, because our gospel came to you not only in word, but also in power and in the Holy Spirit and with full conviction. You know what kind of men we proved to be among you for your sake. And just read verse 6, and he says, And you became imitators of us and of the Lord, for you received the word in much affliction with the joy of the Holy Spirit, so that you became an example to all the believers in Macedonia and Achaia. Every Christian uh, is in Christian ministry, so it's not something reserved for pastors, and you've probably heard that before. But that is to say that God has laid upon every Christian the responsibility for the work of Christian ministry. Ephesians 4, 11 and 12, you, you know the passage perhaps, it says, And he gave to the church 
apostles, prophets, evangelists, shepherds, and teachers to equip the saints for the work of the ministry, for the building up of the body of Christ. So the ministry goal is the glory of God, and the ministry itself, according to Ephesians 4, is for building up the body of Christ. So that's the goal of Christian ministry, is to build up the body of Jesus Christ. That happens through Christians living in loving community and going out and sharing the gospel. Now in the midst of all that, living in Christian gospel-centered community, going out and sharing the gospel with others, it's easy to get discouraged. When we encounter closed doors and suffering and rejection, we come face-to-face even with our own personal inadequacies. We can easily begin to just kind of check out and sit back and settle into routines of work and school and sports, void of any spiritual ministry to others. And so my intention this morning is not just to look at this passage in 1 Thessalonians, but I really I want to take us back to where this relationship between Paul and the church in Thessalonica started. I want to take us back to where this close friendship began to emerge. And while we go back, like I said, we're going to look at Acts chapter 16, Acts chapter 17, and then back here to 1 Thessalonians 1. But I want to give you three ministry principles to help you and to keep you going. We're going to look at two ministry principles from the Apostle Paul in Acts one in Acts 16, one in Acts 17, and then one ministry principle from the example of the Thessalonians here in our passage in 1 Thessalonians chapter 1. Okay, so we're going we're to go back. We're going to look at Acts chapter 16 is the leading Paul followed. Acts chapter 17 is the letdown Paul experienced. And then here in 1 Thessalonians chapter 1, we're going to look at the letter Paul wrote about some very important ministry principles to keep us faithful in the midst of adversity. And that song we just sang, one of the songs, one of, one of the prayers of that song was, Lord, don't, don't, let, don't, let, uh, don't let cowardice come to us. And then, he, and then the next line is, let the, the lethargy awaken us from the lethargy, awaken us from the laziness. And perhaps some of you need to be wake, awoken from the laziness. You need to wake up from the lethargy of Christian ministry. And so I, I, my prayer is that as we go through these principles, that's exactly what will happen. In your heart and in mind, and in mine. So, go back to Acts chapter 16, Acts chapter 16, and we're going to look at verses 6 through 10 where we get our first principle for Christian ministry. Acts chapter 16, I'll read verses 6 through 10, where it says, uh, this is is Paul and Silas and Timothy, it says, they went through the region of Phrygia and Galatia, having been forbidden by the Holy Spirit to speak the word in Asia. And when they had come up to Mysia, they attempted to go into Bithynia, but the Spirit of Jesus did not allow them. So, passing by Mysia, they went down to Troas. And a vision appeared to Paul in the night. A man of Macedonia was standing there, urging him and saying, come over to Macedonia and help. And when Paul had seen the vision, immediately we sought to go on into Macedonia, concluding that God had called us to preach the gospel to them. Here's the first principle I want you to walk away with from this passage. Number one is closed doors don't mean closed down. They mean press forward. Closed doors don't mean closed down. They mean press forward. 
And I'll explain what's going on in this passage. Uh, and and, uh, and maybe I'll just leave that up there just for a minute so you have time to write it down. But closed doors don't mean closed down. They mean press forward. Paul had all the opportunities in the world to close down because he faced a lot of closed doors. And so here's a map. I'm going to show this, uh, show this map to you. Uh, this is Paul's, and I realize it's kind of hard to see, but this is Paul's, if you can see the yellow line, this is Paul's second missionary journey. This is where he traveled. And if you'll notice, I've got kind of that red, longer oval. This is the area in which Paul, this is the Phrygia and the Galatia area that Paul was going through where he wanted to preach the gospel. But you remember, the Holy Spirit forbade, he, the Holy Spirit didn't allow him to preach the gospel there. And so Paul just continued on going through that region. And where you see that, the top circle, that's Mysia. And this is where Paul, from our passage, intended to cross over into Bithynia. He's like, okay, well, let's go preach the gospel there. But that's the, at the very point in which Jesus said, no. And so Paul, not knowing what to do, but just kept moving, ends up over by the coast where there's Troas. And eventually he'll cross, uh, he'll cross over to Philippi and Thessalonica. But I want you to notice that area, kind of where the red oval and red circle is. That's no less, probably a little bit more than 300 miles of doing nothing. And all along the way, Paul is is seeking to share the gospel. He's looking for opening doors. He wants to plant churches and share the gospel. But God said the Holy Spirit, even the word here, it it was forbidden by the Holy Spirit to speak the word there. And then once he gets up there, he's like, well, let's cross over to Bithynia. And it says the spirit of Jesus said no, didn't allow them. Paul, Silas, and Timothy are walking through these regions, and they're prevented by the Holy Spirit to preach the gospel. And this 300 plus miles of nothing happening. Now, rem- now imagine trying to give a missionary report on that journey. And the Holy Spirit, the spirit of Jesus, keeps them out. And so they kept traveling until they come to Troas. And in Troas, God sends Paul a vision. It was a Macedonian man crying out to Paul for help. And Paul then understood that God was calling them to go to Macedonia and preach the gospel. And when I, when I read this uh, about this man calling for help, it reminded me just the other day when I was doing a, a Bible study uh, with someone. And we were talking about the end of life and heaven and hell. And, and, uh, and uh, I, I, I took uh, the people I was doing the Bible study with, I took them to the story of, of Lazarus and the rich man. If you remember that story, where Lazarus was this rich man, he enjoyed a lot of good things. But ultimately, at the end of his life, after he died, he ended up in torment in Hades or in hell. Whereas uh, the rich man ended up there, Lazarus ended up in paradise or in heaven. And remember, the rich man cried out to Abraham, whom he saw. He cried out for help. And, and, uh, and Abraham says, it's too late. There's no help for you. Even, even sending Lazarus to dip some water on his tongue. Abraham said, it's too late for help. And I can't help but look at this passage and see this Macedonian man crying out for help. And how many people around us would cry the same thing, are crying the same thing. And the only help we can be to anyone who doesn't know Jesus as their Savior is while they're still alive. And Paul sees this. The only help we can be to an unbelieving world is to tell them about Jesus while they're still alive. After they're gone, there is no more help for them. 
And so Paul sees this as, okay, the, this is where the open door is. This is, where, this is where the people are ready to receive the gospel. Now think about this. All along the way there, those 300 miles, closed doors don't mean closed down. Paul at any moment could have said, okay, well, I guess, I guess we better just pack it up and head home. It's obvious that God doesn't have anything for us here. I mean, we should even ask, why didn't God just say, hey, Paul, uh, the next stop on your journey is Philippi, which is where Paul would have been before he came to Thessalonica. So why did he have Paul wander around through here, and why did, why did he keep forbidding him and forsaking him and telling him no? And I don't necessarily know the answer, the reason why in this passage the Holy Spirit is doing these things. But I do want to ask that question, why, why so many closed doors? And maybe give a little insight, although I don't know exactly what the Holy Spirit was doing here, other than, of course, leading them to Macedonia. But here's the thing about closed doors. God is, I don't think God is as concerned with getting you from one location to another, but building in you unshakable faith and confidence in his leading no matter what. And so I think this is what 2 Corinthians 3.18 says. This is, this is the goal. This is, where, this, is where, this is what God is trying to do with us. Where he says, we all with unveiled face beholding the glory of the Lord, notice this, are being transformed into the same image as Jesus Christ from one degree of glory to another. So God is trying to shape us into the image of Jesus Christ. That's what he's doing. And many times closed doors, rejection, it's just God's way of saying, keep at it. Closed doors don't mean close down, give up, and just never try again. It means keep going. Keep, keep moving forward until God does open a door. Closed doors, the gospel ministry, don't mean close down, but move forward. Now, can anyone guess, and I don't want you to respond, but can anyone guess in your own mind where I was exactly one year ago today? The answer is, I was standing right here, preaching to Calvary Baptist Church for the very first time you ever would have met me. Amen, thank you. I got one. <laughs> That'll work. That's good. Just got one. Uh, <laughs> and uh, and, there I, and that's, that's where I was. And, and guess what? Before this open door, so to speak, there were two other Doors closed to other ministries in God's providence and God's goodness. I just say that just to illustrate, not that I'm some pro at, you know, not losing steam and I just keep plugging ahead. Just, but God just opened doors. As we, as God, as we follow God's uh, leading and as we serve God, God will lead us to where he wants us to go. And so the problem is, is that many of us are so eager to share the gospel, but we call it quits if there's ever a closed door. And we must remember that a closed door is just that. It's a closed door. Faithfulness moves on and moves ahead when doors close. Because closed doors aren't always permanent. Here's what I love about this passage. Paul's third missionary journey, kind of the tail end of the second and all the way through the third, may have been his most successful. And guess where he was able to preach? Verse 6 says the Holy Spirit, uh, he was forbidden by the Holy Spirit to preach the word in Asia. But guess where he was so fruitful at the end of the second and mostly in the third missionary journey? It was Asia. The very place he wanted to preach during this time, but the Holy Spirit said no. 
Here's what Paul wrote to the Corinthians about Ephesus, which is located in Asia. 1 Corinthians chapter 16, verse 8 through 9. Notice what he says here. He says, I'm going to stay in Ephesus until Pentecost. Why? For a wide door for effective work has opened to me, and there are many adversaries. As if like all the doors kept closing, kept closing, kept closing, but he kept at it, and God eventually threw that door wide open. Now, the thing about this is, is not only does the door open for effective ministry, but notice what he says there. All the adversaries came with it. So we can be sure that whenever God blesses a ministry, Satan is going to seek to blow it up. But was once a closed door was now wide open, and Paul was able to impact Ephesus, Smyrna, Philadelphia, Laodicea, Colossus, Sardis, Pergamus, and Thyatira, all with the gospel. That one time, that was those are all closed off. Those are all closed doors. There's no stopping in Christian ministry. If, the, if a Christian stops, or if the church stops, the gospel stops. And you might say, wait, 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 wait a minute. Is that you can't say that, can you? That's why Jesus closes down churches. That's why he did in Romans, uh, Revelation, at the end of, uh, beginning of Revelation. The gospel is to be carried out by the church. And if the church stops with the gospel, then the gospel stops. So Paul found the, the open door of ministry in Macedonia. But here's the second principle as we continue to move. And this is from Acts chapter 17, where Paul, he, he goes to to Philippi in the rest of chapter 16, and then he lands in Thessalonica in chapter 17. I want to read these verses of his, of his short experience there in uh, Thessalonica. Acts chapter 17, verse 1. It says, Now when they had passed through Amphipolis in Apollonia, they came to Thessalonica. There's about 100 miles from Philippi to Thessalonica. And it says there was a synagogue of the Jews. So Paul went in, as was his custom, and on three Sabbath days, he reasoned with them from the scriptures, explaining and proving that it was necessary for the Christ to suffer and to rise from the dead. And then saying, Jesus, this is Jesus, whom I proclaim to you, is this suffering and risen Christ. Verse 4, and some of them were persuaded and joined Paul and Silas, as did a great many of the devout Greeks and not a few of the leading women. But the Jews were jealous, and taking some of the wicked men of the rabble, or some market men, we'll talk about that word here in a minute, they formed a mob. They set the city in an uproar and attacked the house of Jason, seeking to bring them out to the crowd. And when they could not find them, they dragged Jason and some of the brothers before the city authorities, shouting, These men who have turned the world upside down have come here also, and Jason has received them. And they're all acting against the decrees of Caesar, saying that there is another king, Jesus. And the people and the city authorities were disturbed when they heard these things. And when they had taken money as security from Jason to the rest, they let them go. The brothers immediately sent Paul and Silas away by night to Berea. And that's where the account of Thessalonica ends. So Paul goes to Philippi. About a 100-mile trip on the Ignatian Way. That's a popular Roman highway. This port city, the capital of Macedonia, population of about 200,000. And this metropolis had aligned itself with the interests of Rome. This is going to help us understand why there's so much commotion. This metropolis had aligned itself with the interests of Rome, and so they reaped all the benefits of, of, of what Rome could give them. 
And so they even, they even had the benefit of autonomy from Rome, as well as financial freedom. And so Thessalonica, this town, pledged to Rome, reaping all the benefits from Rome, although not really necessarily obligated to them in a sense. This would become the center of Christian ministry in Macedonia. Now it says here, Paul went to the synagogue, which is his custom when he went anywhere. He would go, he, in, in Romans he says he, the gospel's for the Jews first. And so he'd go find a synagogue and he would, he would go to the synagogue and reason with the Jews that the Christ that they were looking for was supposed to come, suffer, die, and rise from the dead. And then he'd say, and that's what Jesus did. Jesus is the fulfillment of all those things. And now he spent three Sabbath days, so three weeks proclaiming Christ and God saved Many, many people. It says some of the Jews were persuaded in verse 4, but then a great many of the devout Greeks and a few of the leading women in the town. Just this great revival through Paul's preaching. So this three-week public ministry saw a lot of fruit. Now, most likely, Paul wasn't just there three weeks so I don't, I don't think it's saying three weeks and then immediately he was kicked out. Just judging by uh, the, the work he was able to do there, most commentators estimate that Paul was probably there more like four to six months. But he would open the Bible. He would explain with proof that, G, that the Christ, the Messiah, had to come suffer, die, rise from the dead. And then he would explain with proof that Jesus, the crucified Jesus was the one who fulfilled the prophecies and that he was the Christ, the, the crucified and risen Savior. And so the Jews become jealous. Right? In verse 5, because they were trying to get the Greeks to join the Jewish faith. And here comes Paul, and takes that all away. And so many Jews joined Paul and Silas, and so did lots of Greeks. But notice here it says, and some of the Jews were jealous and they took these wicked men of the rabble. The, the word literally means, uh, some of your, your translations may say he went to the market or the marketplace. The, the word literally means market loafer or market lounger. Basically, it's, the, it's a bunch of guys who were mooching off of the financial freedom that Rome gave them. And they were just sitting around basically just looking for something exciting to do. And Paul, later in the book of Thessalonians, uh, in both, both First and Second Thessalonians, Paul is going to warn against idleness. He's going to warn against just simply taking all the money and not doing work for yourself. We'll get to that at a, at a later sermon, Lord willing. But a bunch of guys just hanging around, just looking for something exciting. They, they were probably indifferent to what was going on. But when these Jews came to him and said, hey... Listen, there's some guys over here causing trouble, and we're about to go and just attack Jason's house. And they're so bored with things to do, they said, yeah, sure, let's go. And so these market loungers went with these Jews and attacked the house of Jason, who probably was a new convert, probably just came to Jesus. And here it is a group of guys attacking his house, kicking in the door, ransacking the place, looking everywhere for Paul and Silas, but they couldn't find them. And so they, they took out Jason, and they made him pay money to guarantee that Paul and Silas would leave and no longer preach there. That's what happens at the end of this account in chapter 17. When they had taken money as security from Jason, it was kind of Jason's way of, one, he had to pay a fee, and then he had to kind of guarantee that Paul and Silas weren't going to cause any more problems. 
And so they took Paul and Silas and they sent them away by night. The second principle, forgive me for only just now getting to it, trust me it was on the screen, but our, our second principle is this. Our heritage is suffering, our hope is Jesus Christ. Because Paul, one commentator said, Paul left behind him in Thessalonica a heritage of suffering. The Jews there were relentless. As a matter of fact, we read on, when Paul gets to Berea and starts ministry there, Jews from Thessalonica actually followed him down to Berea and kicked him out of there too. So Paul ended up having to go way down to Corinth in Athens. But Paul left in his wake a heritage of suffering. And that's why Paul left. Listen, Paul did not leave because he was concerned about preserving his own life. Nor did he want to leave. First uh, Thessalonians chapter 2, verse 17, he describes, he says, we were, we were torn away from you. But Paul knew that for him to stay, it would not only cause more problems, but it would absolutely, actually put other Christians there in jeopardy. Perhaps Jason would have to keep paying more and more money. Perhaps Jason and his family would be in danger with their own lives. So Paul knew that if the way out of that sort of suffering for them was for him to leave, that's what he did. But yet we know, as we read through 1 Thessalonians, that the suffering remained and the persecution remained. And that Paul knew that he left a heritage of suffering behind him. And that's our heritage as well. John 15, 20 says this. These are the words of Jesus. He says, remember the word that I said to you. A servant is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they're going to persecute you. They kept my word. They're going to keep yours. But if they persecuted me, they're going to persecute you. Romans 8, Pastor Matt preached on this last week. If we suffer with Jesus, we will be glorified with him. Suffering is our heritage. Our hope is Jesus Christ. Now I want you to look at what Hudson Taylor, Hudson Taylor was the founder of the China Inland Mission. And he wrote a letter to prospective missionaries. And this is, this is I think this is just, just, just great what he wrote. Here's what he wrote to prospective missionaries. He says, if you want hard work and little appreciation, if you value God's approval more than you fear man's disfavor, if you are prepared to take joyfully the spoiling of your goods and seal your testimony, if need be, with your blood, if you can pity and love the Chinese, you may count on a harvest of souls now and a crown of glory hereafter that fadeth not away on the master's well done. The men, the only men, who will be happy with us are those who have this world under their feet. And I do not venture to say that such men will find a happiness they ever dreamed. They never, or I venture to say that such men will find a happiness they never dreamed of or thought possible down here. What if that was the sign on our church, Calvary Baptist Church? What if our sign, what if we met you, when you came in the door, we said, listen, the only people that will be happy at Calvary Baptist Church are those who leave their possessions and their politics at the door. And they give themselves wholly to Jesus Christ for genuine gospel community and genuine gospel witness. What if that was the sign? Ministry comes with a promise 
of a happiness you'd never thought possible. But it comes with a heritage of suffering you may never have realized. But again, that promise of happiness you never thought possible. I can only pray, like in Luther's hymn, Oh God, may I let my goods and kindred go. May I let this mortal life also. They can kill me, but they can't kill the gospel. And if my life needs to be expended for the sake of Jesus Christ, so be it. Oh God, make that true in my own heart. Because I can give my life for that. You can give your lives for that. Nobody in here wants to give their lives for just a bunch of people gathering on a Sunday. Is my bet. If we, no, nobody's going to go out and give their lives, give their time, sacrifice their goods and their kindred just simply for the sake of getting more isolated uh, uh, individuals to sit in a pew. But if there's a hope for a happiness that you can never dream of on this world, and it's found through the gospel of Jesus Christ, if there's a hope that there could be a community of people surrounded by the gospel and the gospel enveloping their very heart and soul, and that there's lives that can be changed through Jesus Christ, that's something we can give our lives for. And so now we just got to pray, oh God, may it be, may it be so for me. Our heritage is suffering, our hope is Jesus Christ. Which leads us to the third and final principle. And with that we take our leave of the book of Acts and go over to 1 Thessalonians chapter 1. We've already read the passage. With all that groundwork laid, what happened in the lives of the Thessalonians is that before they became verse 6 and verse 7, that is, imitators of us, and that you became an example to all believers, verse 8 says, the word of the Lord sounded forth from you, and your faith has gone forth everywhere. But before their faith went everywhere, it had to start with what we find in verse 3. And this is our third principle for Christian ministry. Christian ministry starts with Christ-like character. It starts in our own hearts. It starts inside each and every one of us. That's where Christian ministry starts. Paul wrote this letter. And just think about the Thessalonians. They're new believers. They love Paul. They love Silas. Timothy probably wasn't there in Acts chapter 17. He was, he was left back. But Timothy would be the one Paul would send back to the Thessalonians to check on how they're doing. We read that in 1 Thessalonians chapter 3. But just, just think about these Thessalonians. They, they, get, they get a letter and the first words are Paul, Silas, and Timothy. Man, what, what affection would have welled up in their heart when they thought about these three guys. And he was concerned about their welfare, so Paul says, we give thanks to God. Notice Paul doesn't congratulate them, but he recognized the work of God in their lives. He says, we thank God for you. Now, this is kind of interesting as well. Because his thankfulness was not based on his circumstances. He could have said, he could have said, hey, remember when I was there in your town, just treated me like total junk, and we had to, all this stuff, and I just had a miserable time, and, and Jason's house was attacked, and, and everybody's just miserable in life? No. He said, I thank God. I thank God for being there. I thank God, I thank God for his work in your life. 
And his thankfulness wasn't based on their achievement. Now, we're going to get through more of this book, and we're kind of going to realize that the Thessalonians, they didn't have it all together. But it's interesting, Paul, more than any other New Testament epistle that he wrote, he loves the Thessalonians, maybe we could say the most, if we could put it that way. Now, he tells most every church, I thank God for you and we love you at the beginning of, 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 uh, of his epistle. And he means it. But in this book, even the first three chapters of 1 Thessalonians is really all about Paul's affection for them. He had a deep love for this church. But he's also going to address some problems that were in the church. Idleness, we talked about that. There was the sexual immorality there's a misunderstanding of the things of God and how we ought to live in light of Christ's return. One commentator said, Paul was well aware of the imperfections that still exist. And yet he said, I'm thankful for you. Another commentator uh, said, the Thessal- in summary, the Thessalonian church consisted of the same odd collection of believers as the average congregation today. And Paul says, I'm thankful for you. Because if our thankfulness to God for others depends on an absence of brokenness, then I'm never going to be thankful for anyone, and I'm just going to be a, a curmudgeon. And Paul celebrated the work of the gospel in their lives. We can do that. We can do that. Any follower of Jesus, there's always something to celebrate. We can always celebrate the work of God in someone's life, even if there's just small steps being taken. We celebrate small steps. We celebrate small ounces, inches of maturity. We're not just waiting for everybody just to have it together all in one week. And so Paul is celebrating the work of the gospel, and then he commends them for, if you notice uh, this, this, this Christian triad, faith, hope, and love, your work of faith, your label of love, uh, labor of love, and steadfastness of hope in the Lord Jesus. The work produced by faith. I'm going to take just very briefly each, each one of those and talk about how these virtues led them to be the church that they uh, were known to be, a, a church that rang out, a church where the gospel went forth everywhere from them. The work produced by faith. This is, this is the entirety of the Christian life. It was faith that energized their Christian life. Yes, it starts with faith in the Lord Jesus Christ for salvation. That comes first. But then their lives were ruled by that faith. They lived lives of holiness and righteousness because they depended on Jesus alone to be saved. And so listen, you are saved by faith alone, but as the reformer said, not by faith which remains alone. So faith that saves is also a faith that works. There should be fruit. This is what James uh, chapter 2 verse 26 says. Actually, a lot of uh, verses uh, around there. Where James says this, for as the body apart from the spirit is dead, so also faith apart from works is dead. You're saved by trusting and depending on Jesus Christ alone for your salvation. That's it. But that change, that spiritual change, that new birth, that God, that miracle that God does when a sinner turns to Jesus Christ, it shows up in life. A life of faith is constant. And it's dependence on God no matter what we're facing. So I ask you, one, have you turned to God to be saved? That's what faith is. Faith is the turning. It's the turning away from yourself. And it's trusting in Jesus Christ alone for your salvation. He died for your sins and rose again. 
Have you turned to him to be saved? And if you have, the other question is, do you stay turned to God as you walk through life? Do you stay turned to God as you watch the news? Do you stay turned to God when your kids are thrown a fit or fighting for the hundredth time again that day? Do you stay turned to God when you and your spouse maybe aren't on the same page? Do you stay turned to God when, when your health just tanks and the cancer diagnosis comes? That's the work produced by faith. It, he's really referring to the whole Christian life. But then there's the labor motivated by love. Now the word labor, it's different than the word work. The word labor is kind of have that arduous, wearisome, turmoil, uh, or that, that arduous, wearisome sort of toil. It's the kind of weariness we experience at, you know, when we've, we've expended all of our energy and we're just, we're just drained. This word emphasizes the cost, the sweat, the tears of what serving God entails. Without love, it doesn't exist. This love, we won't take time to turn there, but this love serves the saints, Hebrews chapter 6, verse 10. This love seeks the lost, 2 Corinthians 5, 14, where Paul says, the love of Christ compels me, it controls me. That I go and I preach, be reconciled to God. It, it shows itself by its deeds, 1 John 3, 18. It's stirred, in, uh, stirred, up, stirred up in us by others, Hebrews 10, 24. Don't forsake the assembling of yourselves together. When you come together, stir up one another to love and good works. That's the sort of love. It's, a, it's, a, it's an all-in sort of love. No matter the cost, no matter how much sweat, no matter the tears, no matter the blood, blood, sweat, and tears and all, showing our love. And then finally, he says, not only did you have the virtue of this, this faith, this faith within you that produced work, not only did you have within you this virtue of love, Cause you to labor for the church, for the lost. But you also had this endurance empowered by hope, steadfastness of hope in our Lord Jesus Christ. They were under duress and they were struggling to keep their head above water. And let me just say, if you're in here this morning and you're struggling to keep your head above water, then this is exactly what you need. The sorrows of the world are just flooding you and you're not sure you can stay afloat much longer, the endurance empowered by hope, that's, this is what you need. Because this is the spirit to bear up under things, no matter what's going on. It's bearing all things with blazing hope. Endurance is not just simply passively resigning to whatever comes into our lives. Or whatever trials or struggles we're facing. This endurance is boldly facing our trials, our conflicts, our hurts, and our struggles, both inward and outward, and walking through them with eager anticipation of future release. Psalm 23, even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil. Their faith looked back on the Lord Jesus Christ, their love looked around for others, and their hope looked ahead. Faith, hope, and love. Now listen, faith, hope, and love, this it's not just a cool thing to put on your wall or a coffee mug or a tattoo or anything like that. This faith, hope, and love is Christian virtue. And if these virtues aren't really virtues, if they don't produce anything in you. And so their virtue of faith produced this hope. 
This virtue of love produced this labor. This virtue of hope produced endurance. That's what these things are for. 1 Corinthians 13, 13, these three remain, faith, hope, and love. And he would say the greatest of these is love. And so the Thessalonians lived before the Lord, their sovereign ruler and loving father with Christ-like virtue and character. That's where Christian ministry starts. That's what's needed in the heart of every Christian. We won't have time to unpack these, but notice he says this is all because of the gospel. Verse 4, we know, brothers loved by God, that he has chosen you because our gospel came to you not only in word but in power, in the Holy Spirit and with full conviction. Paul knew that God had chosen them. It was God who initiated their salvation. And these were the virtues that were the product of the gospel in their hearts and in their lives. This was the result of the gospel coming in power in the Holy Spirit with full assurance and conviction. That power the Holy Spirit uses to raise spiritually dead people to life so it gave Paul and others just such full assurance that as they declared the gospel, people would respond to it and the Holy Spirit would be powerfully at work. Every Christian is in Christian ministry. We have to remember that closed doors don't mean closed down. They mean press forward. Our heritage is suffering, but our hope is the Lord Jesus Christ. And Christian ministry always starts on the inside. It starts with Christ-like character. And from there, as we'll see next week as we meet, Lord willing, we'll see what God can do with a a man or woman or a church with these virtues. And it's going to be pretty great to see what God does through this church of Thessalonica. Let's pray. Lord, I pray for my own heart. Lord, I pray, um, again, the words we sang earlier, that you would keep me from cowardice, that you would awaken my own heart my own tendencies towards lethargy lethargy and laziness. And Lord, that uh, whatever closed doors you bring my way or have brought my way, that you could just continue to to implant in me a zeal and an ambition to press forward. And Lord, that you would give me the hope of the Lord Jesus Christ as I serve in ministry, not just pastoral ministry, but my own personal Christian ministry. And Lord, I pray that within my own heart, You'd work out these virtues of faith, hope, and love to be one who endures and labors and works for your honor and your glory. In Jesus' name, amen. Please stand, if you would. Let's sing together, Yet not I, but through Christ in me.